Nothing in this world could prepare you for hearing the sounds of shots being fired as your child screams in fear on the other end of the line. There's not a book to teach you how to react. There is nothing. For Mary Jean Pearl, she could have read a book, attended the seminars, and had a script to follow. But when the ring of the first shot sounded, she would have still begged John to stop and urged her daughters to run. John didn't stop there. He then took this one step further and left this goodbye message on his girl's answering machine at their mother's home. Good night, my little baby. I hope you're resting in a different place. John Battaglia walking into your life could be two things. You could have a friend who is charismatic and spontaneous, or you could have your worst fear come to life right there in front of you. Michelle fought back and won her life. Mary Jean fought back and lost those who made hers. But he would pay with the only valuable thing he had, his life. Welcome to the True Crime Librarian. I'm your librarian and host, Ashley. Tonight we are going to close out the case on John Battaglia Jr., It has been one of the more horrible cases to come across the librarian's desk in the entirety of the show, but there is something to be learned from this case. Domestic violence is not okay, and the law needs to take these acts far more serious than they already do. Like with everything, you will have those to call wolf, but you will have those that need you to be the one thing that will save their life. Cases like this one prove that this is a gamble not worth taking. Losing a life because you didn't believe the victim is not okay. The rate of murders that occur due to previous domestic violence should not be this high. Warning. This episode contains graphic detail of emotional abuse, domestic abuse, murder, and adult language. Listener's discretion is strongly advised. If any of this may be too much for you, please, please skip this episode or have someone listen with you or for you. Good evening, my true crime nerds. We have just a little bit of housekeeping to get to tonight before we close out this horrible case. First, thank you all for tuning in and listening as we cover John Patalia. I know this one has been extremely difficult to listen to 
And just know that if you are struggling to get through the episodes on this case, please know that I would not blame you if you had to start and stop multiple times or even completely quit listening altogether. I'm still going to appreciate your honesty and the value that you have to know that you are not strong enough for this. It's okay. We listen to some amazingly horrible crimes uh, through True Crime Podcast and shows like TTCL, and we all have our limit. We all have that bar, and you do not owe me crossing that bar. You don't have to. Don't put yourself in a situation that it, you know would not be good for you. That's, let me just point to that. So if you need to stop listening, I completely 100% understand. This week, instead of asking for reviews, recommendations, or donations to the show, I'm going to do something a little bit different. If you're capable, I ask that you donate to your local women and children shelter or to an organization that helps those who are victims of domestic violence. If you cannot make a monetary donation, they could always use clothing, hygiene products, and even food. Check with them to see what they could use at this time, and with winter being around the corner, I know they could always use blankets, coats, and socks. Thanks to a listener who decided to stop with this case during last week's episode, and instead she reached out to her local shelter and made that contribution. And that's where I pulled this idea from, and so now I challenge all of you to do the same. In honor of someone in your life that survived, someone who is fighting, or even for Michelle and Mary Jean, domestic violence should not be tolerated anymore, and we can make a difference. With that being said, tonight my true crime nerd love goes out to each and every person who is out there fighting or has survived this kind of violence, and for those who fell victim to their abusers. My offer stands today, tomorrow, and forever. You do not have to do this alone. If you need anyone, reach out to me. Now to what you all came here for, the true crime. So last week we left off with the birth of John and Mary Jean's first child, Mary Faith, who went by Faith. John's continuing mental abuse was quick to turn back to Mary Jean after she was no longer carrying his child. With the short-lived high of the birth of Mary Faith, and since John had a full-time job and couldn't always direct his fits of anger to Mary Jean, he did so with a colleague who had a visible handicap. She had a pronounced limp due to having polio as a child, and this colleague often bore the brunt of John's anger while he was at work. This generally was nowhere close to the bullshit that he dealt out to his wife, but it was more than any supervisor should ever deal out to their employees. Finally, this female subordinate decided she had had enough of John's anger and multiple bouts of just going off on her and launched a sexual harassment suit against John. What did John do? He launched a sexual, sexual harassment suit against a female supervisor of his who had used some choice words with John at one point or another. 
The supervisor did apologize to John and promised to clean up her language. But did John drop that suit? No. Why? Because the subordinate under him was still pursuing hers. John continued with his little temper tantrums until he lost his supervisor's position and he lost being in control of 11 employees. With all of this newfound frustration from his job, John found solace at night in Deep Ellum. Tattoos, bars, concerts, and the people became John's outlet. It, he didn't change his vulgar words directed towards Mary Jean. And one night, John decided he was going to take Mary Jean's car and go down to Deep Ellum. Now, had he checked his wife's car a little more thoroughly that night, he would have seen her handgun that was still in the vehicle. Well, when John pulled up to a cafe, which is like a pub style slash bar kind of thing, the security guard working noticed the weapon in the passenger seat floorboard of the vehicle, and he was not about to allow anyone carrying a firearm into his bar. John played it off and he, you know, he's like, you know, it's my wife's car. That's her gun. I'm not going to carry it. But this security guard was not going to, to let John just break the rules like he was so accustomed to doing. There were officers close by that night and they weren't going to let John throw his weight around either. So John was arrested on a misdemeanor charge of unlawful carrying of a firearm. Well, you would think that with John's very colorful background, this could have popped a red flag with the police, but it didn't. Instead, John went in, he was booked, fingerprinted, picture taken, and then he picked up the phone and called Mary Jean's brother, who was an attorney, at 2 a.m. to come down, get him out of jail, and make this disappear because these charges could very well cost him his very cushiony government job. John took pride in his work. He wanted to be the top dog, the one calling the shots. So when he stumbled on some irregular billing that was costing RTC more money than it should, he gained approval from a higher up when he brought this to their attention. However, he was extremely disappointed when he was instructed to keep paying these invoices, even though that continued to mean RTC overpaid this company. Well, with John's stress levels, it only rose, and this investigation really wasn't getting anywhere. Not like he had thought it would. He thought, if I bring this to their attention and I save us some money, they're just going to hand me this, you know, golden key to the everything. But it didn't. He was instructed, you keep doing your job and I'll look into this. It's none of your business kind of thing. So John didn't like that. And he decided, I'm going to keep digging into this and see what he could do about this overpayment and overbilling. What he learned was that a few years prior, another government employee became a millionaire when suing a defense contractor in a basic whistleblower style case. And it hit John and the light bulb turned on. This was his way of making his own money and he wouldn't have to live under the shame of the money that he did have actually belonged to his wife and her family. 
On January 17th of 1995, John took little Mary Faith up into the labor and delivery and introduced her to her newest sister, Liberty. The three-year-old toddler fell absolutely in love with her little sister, and Chrissy had already been head over heels in love with her sister, Mary Faith, and now she had a new baby sister, Liberty. It was a, it was a dream come true for John's oldest daughter. On the drive home from the hospital, Mary Jean got to see a glimpse of the man that she had fallen in love with. You would never have known that it was only six months before that he was sitting in jail waiting for his brother-in-law to compel him out after his recent run-in with the law. Mary Jean decided once they had once they arrived home that the beautiful red brick home that was gifted to the couple as a wedding present, it didn't accommodate a yard size that would fit a family of four with the fifth member coming in and out once a month for visitation outlined in the papers. Not to mention the three dogs and two cats. Plus, it would be a huge bonus if they could find something where the housekeeper could live in and be on the property at all times. Instead of going to John about her wanting to upgrade the home, she went to her parents, the ones she could count on when it comes to things like this. You can argue that this was part of the problem during their counseling visits with the Catholic priest, and this could only further escalate the issues with John. And it did. Mary Jean was accustomed to going to her parents, asking for what she wanted, and being handed what she wanted. What she could not count on was John. John had already proven that he could be a very hateful person and, and put her down in a level that made her question her own self-esteem. He was not good for her, but these small acts were not good for her either. But she wasn't going to change her way of life just because John had an ego. She wanted her children to have the very best. So the family went out and began shopping, and they finally decided on a million-dollar two-story home. It had a garage out back, and above the garage was a two-bedroom guest house, perfect for a live-in maid or nanny. Highland Park was the new home of the Patalias and owned solely by Mary Jean thanks to her father and mother. Her father had sold off some stock in order to pay for this home and just like he had done with the first home, he put the second home in Mary Jean's name, which was incredibly smart. That meant if John, or should we say when her and John split up, she would always have a home for her children. In John's eyes, he was being pushed further and further out of his own family. He was replaceable, and that was completely unacceptable in his eyes. Along with the arrival of his new daughter and the purchase of a new home, John began filing his suit on behalf of RTC, his very own get-rich-quick scheme. John sent out a copy of the lawsuit to then-Attorney General Janet Reno, and to everyone's surprise, the government joined in on John's lawsuit. As John is gaining traction with this lawsuit and the government, Mary Jean suffered a great loss. 
the only man in her life she could count on had passed away. She was devastated at the loss of her father, and she had a hard time bringing herself to get out of bed, let alone support her husband, who was in this very career-altering lawsuit. So Mary Jean went to the doctor and under advisement was put on antidepressants. And at the time, Zoloft was a huge name in the antidepressant field. So that's what they put Mary Jean on. It did not help for a long time. She had a hard time breaking that bubble and that meant that it left her housekeeper taking care of not only the house and the children full time and in her own, now Mary Jean was struggling to pick up the little bit of slack that was left. And when John wasn't working at his full-time job or on the lawsuit of his very stupidness, um, sorry, on his lawsuit, John would help out with the kids as much as possible at home. But I can only assume, which I know what you're going to say. Yeah, ask you, me. I got it. Just where Mary Jean ran off to her father to help her obtain her million dollar perfect family home, John was not making it easy on his wife to come out of the baby blues. Well, not baby blues. Come out of that depression after her father passed away. He was probably still talking to her like she was scum beneath him. He made sure to keep her in her place and that's only going to further deepen that depression in Mary Jean. At the end of 1995, the RTC was dissolved, which means John was without a job, but he wasn't going to give up on this lawsuit. He knew it could make him a millionaire overnight. So to kind of curb the fact that he didn't have that full-time job, he started a private accounting practice that he set up shop in above his mother-in-law's antique shop. So John was renting space from now his mother-in-law. His wife owned the home he lived in and the car he drove and the money that, you know, he wasn't bringing in. Everything tied John back to Mary Jean. Everything. And John could not stand that he was like a kept husband, if you want to call it that way. He didn't want to be. He wanted to be a man. He wanted to provide. He needed to be the big dog. I mean, that's the only way you carry power, right? Well, in John's life, the only time he had a simulation of power is when he was being emotionally abusive to his wife. That year, his income fell to about 40000 And that's because John just didn't care. His attention was on this lawsuit. And the reason I'm kind of on this and and wanting to talk about this with you is because this was a huge, huge move, okay, in this case. For John, it could fix all of these issues he was seeing. And this is his narcissistic personality disorder that he has that we were talking about last episode, you know. He has to be the top dog. I mean, that's what he was working for when he started his bullshit with RTC. 
he wanted to be recognized that he could get things done and they would advance him. What they recognized was he was a pain in the ass. That's what they recognized. They didn't want to work for him. They will work with him. He maintained his job because he really didn't give them anything to fire him on. Had they known about the misdemeanor charge that he beat, he probably would have lost his job. But he didn't because John finds loopholes. That's what he's good at. He plays the system. And now he's going to play this system and earn himself a hell of a lot of money. More money than possibly his wife had. So in order to escalate this lawsuit, John decided he was going to contact the media and he told this tall tale of his fight for the American people and the gross mishandling of taxpayers' money. And with the government in the run with him, he was going to sue for $15 million. This was the minimum with the triple damages the government was able to sue for. Well, let me just tell you, Mary Jean's estimated worth at that time was $4 million. $15 million would almost quadruple what she had. And he could no longer have to answer to her. Well, the company that John was suing, TDC, it came into this battle with 37 attorneys. And they were not taking John Lane down. If they were going to have to pay a man like John Battaglia, they were going to make sure every I was dotted and every T was crossed. He wasn't going to be handed a life of luxury. They were going to put him through the ringer for it. Now, TDC was charged with overbilling and submitting false invoices, but their countersuit against the government was set for $8 million. On August 8th of 1998, John's big payday had started. This trial began. He, they were in court. They were fighting. And he just knew that their lawsuit was airtight. It lasted a month before it was handed over to a jury who John was personally a part of helping seat. In the end, the jury found that RTC was the one in the wrong when they stopped paying invoices once the lawsuit began. And the government, in the end, was ordered to pay more than $15 million. John had cost them even more in court and attorney fees and interest on top of the $15 million they were awarded. John had disgraced the government. But worse than that, he was still a kept man by his still richer-than-him wife, Mary Jean. Five full years had been wasted away. Now John feels like everyone's laughing, everyone's snickering, and they're all talking bad about him behind his back with this giant hubbub. Mary Jean ended up boring the brunt of John's anger and embarrassment. How could she possibly understand what he was going through when she was nothing more than a, quote, stupid bitch? January of 1999, things between Mary Jean and John had boiled to a head. John was to a point that he was boiling over and he berated her about a cookie being stale and he threw it at her. And, you know, Mary Jean had learned over the years, she wasn't stupid. She understood this was just the beginning of what would become John's temper tantrum. 
And if left be, his name-calling and degrading remarks were only going to get worse. Was this life what Mary Jean had signed up for? Could she be a divorcee and a single mother? With her now four- and seven-year-old girls watching, what was she teaching them? This is not the life she wanted them to settle for. She needed to show them that there was someone out there that would treat them, that wouldn't treat them like this, and they could stand up and demand better. So instead of playing into John's trap, Mary Jean threw him out of her house. Her father may be gone, but he made damn sure to take care of his daughter before he left this world. Of course, John tried to fight back and say, you know, it's over. It's just about a stupid cookie. But Mary Jean was done. She was done playing his games. It wasn't just a stale cookie. It was John and his attitude. The last five years have only soured the man she had once knew. He was no longer there. He had an hour to get his shit and get the fuck out. John was pissed. He's being kicked out of his own house. Well, sorry to tell you, you deserved it. And uh, I'm not going to change my mind. So John hopped in his car with his things, took off, and he drove to his favorite place in all of Dallas, Deep Ellum. He decided that the Adams Hat Lofts were the perfect bachelor pad for him. He wanted to live there. He wanted the life. He was watching others live, and his controlling wife and her money would no longer tell him what to do. December 1999, after almost an entire year of being separated, John and Mary Jean had the holidays coming up upon them. Christmas morning, the girls would spend that morning with their mother, opening all the gifts stacked around the beautiful tree that touched the ceiling of their living room. At 8.45 a.m., the doorbell rang. Faith and Liberty were not quite ready for their father to pick them up and take them to church with their big sister, Christy. Yet, here he was, early. Christy and John went in after John threw this big fit, you know, if she, if I can't go in, she can't go in kind of thing. And so Christy was, she came in, she got to see everything the girls had received for Christmas but according to that protection order, Mary Jean was, John was not to be in Mary Jean's home, no matter what. But she had caved because the girls really wanted to, you know, show Christy everything that they got. And, you know, what the hell, it's Christmas, right? What could go wrong? Mary Jean loved having Christy in her life. And she loved having her around her girls. And so she decided that she was going to invite her to dinner after church. But John told her, if I'm not invited, she's not invited. And Mary Jean left it at that. She wasn't going to start a fight. It was Christmas. Let's just move on. You know, you're not supposed to be here. You know you're not. I'm already breaking protection order by letting you in here. Let's just, let me get the girls ready. Y'all can go to church. So Mary Jean, she steps foot onto the very first step leading to the second story, and she notices John's following. She goes up, and when she passes by her bedroom door, she goes to pull the door shut. John reaches out and pushes the door open and asks her, you know, what are you trying to hide? And Mary Jean flat out told him, 
this is none of your business. This is not your house. You no longer live here. And that set John off. When Mary Jean told him she didn't trust him and didn't want to go there with him on Christmas, John said he could say whatever he wanted to. Well, Mary Jean snapped back and said, so could she. And that small remark pushed John over the edge. Right there in her daughter's bedroom, John attacked Mary Jean. He shoved her face into the mattress, screaming that she couldn't say whatever she wanted to him. John was punching the pin down Mary Jean. 10, 15, 20 blows would land on Mary Jean's defenseless body. Blows as hard as John could throw. Mary Jean called for the girls to call 911. All they could do is scream at their father and beg him to stop hitting Mary Jean. But there really wasn't much they could do. They were all paralyzed in fear as as this is going on in front of them. When Mary Jean fell from the bed to the floor, John resorted to slamming her head against the floor and then began kicking her wherever he could land his foot. Christy eventually reached out and grabbed her father's shirt and tried to pull him from Mary Jean. All three girls are crying and screaming, but it's Christy's voice that is the loudest, begging her father to stop. When the kicks finally stopped, Mary Jean timidly lifted her head to see that John was gone. Liberty had gone to hide in the girls' bathroom, and Faith had shut the door and locked it as soon as John had left. Christy stood completely still in the girl's bedroom. John left without taking her, and he had all of her belongings. Mary Jean stood to see her body riddled with lumps, cuts, bruises, and her hair lay in tufts on the floor as John had ripped them from her head. Officers and paramedics were on scene within minutes of John leaving, and the officer who looked over Mary Jean insisted that she go be checked out by more than just first responders. She needed a CAT scan, MRI. We, she, they don't know the extent of the eternal, internal damages. But because it was Christmas and because she had 12 guests arriving at 2 p.m. for dinner, she, she promised that she would go and see her doctor the very next day. The officer and first responder relented, but they went ahead and took down the charges and Mary filed against John that very moment. She didn't know that those charges were going to bring with it more pain than any beating John could deliver. This entire incident has nothing more than a misdemeanor on John's record written all over it. A warrant would be issued for his arrest, but his punishment was going to be far less severe than the beating he gave Mary Jean. After Mary Jean's dinner party, where her guests took it upon themselves to make the meal after she told them what had happened, Mary Jean knew it was time. We're going to get rid of him. We're going to file for divorce. So Mary Jean, she calls Michelle after the dinner party and lets her know what had happened and that she had Christy. 
But with it being Christmas and there are no flights going out of DFW, she would have to put her on a flight the following day to Colorado where Michelle was and the rest of Christy's family was eagerly waiting for her to get back into their custody because this entire thing is absolutely terrifying knowing what they know about John Battaglia. That Christmas, Christy got to see the man that had hurt her mother, that hurt her sister's mother. Their relationship would change. Christy wanted nothing more to do with her father, and she was old enough for the courts to have to listen to her. Mary Jean immediately filed for divorce from John Battaglia, and the judge overseeing their separation decided John needed a cooling-off period in which he wouldn't have no contact with Mary Jean, Mary Faith, or Liberty for 30 days. This judge right here, if more judges had followed suit, John would have never had the opportunity that he had to make a name for himself in such an infamous way. But instead, we end up with dumbass judges making dumbass calls. The very same thing that we saw with Michelle was now starting to happen with Mary Jean. For much of her marriage to John, John kept his hands to himself. He was just emotionally abusive, and he could be because he knew that Mary Jean was inferior to him. He had a master's degree. She didn't even have her high school diploma. But what he could never get over was the fact that she, who was so stupid, so beneath him, had far more money than he could ever master in a lifetime. And that pissed him off, and that's why he was constantly after Mary Jean. He needed to hurt her. Because in the end, she's still better than him. Once she filed for the divorce, she also filed for a protection order. And at this point during the case, I'm pretty convinced it's worth nothing more than the paper it's printed on. But each and every attack, each and every visit, each and every conversation, no matter what the interaction was with John, Mary Jean copied down each one. On July 12th of 2000, this was a day for Mary Jean. John was finally going to have to stand in a court of law for what he had done to her on Christmas Day just seven months prior. But John pulled his fucking bullshit again and called the house. The only line inside of Mary Jean's home that he was allowed to call was the girls. So calling Mary Jean on hers was yet another violation to that protection order. But John doesn't care. Violation? Eh, he'll beat it. And he will. None of these repeated offenses phased John. But he needed to play nice for right now in hopes that he could get Mary Jean to drop the charges or maybe play into a plan that would help him beating these charges easier. He told Mary Jean that he would agree to the last set of terms of custody that they had laid out and that that was good enough. He'd sign the divorce papers. He needed her to meet him down at the family court at 8.30 that morning. They had court in the criminal court at 10 a.m. across town. So Mary Jean showed up just as John had told her 
and to her amazement, there's nothing on the docket for family court for the Battaglia family. John had pulled another one over Mary Jean, and now there was no way she was going to be able to be on time and present for his criminal hearing, and this meant it would have to be postponed yet again. The judge was not impressed that Mary Jean was late to the hearing, and he was not going to hear out what her excuse was, even though her lawyer was relaying in real time, she's on her way, this is where she's at. The judge could have very well decided to dismiss all charges against John since Mary Jean was not in court at the time stated. However, the state could, or Mary Jean's lawyers could, declared they were not ready, which would mean that they could file a continuation to the trial. Most times when that happens, it's a six-month mandatory wait before the refile can occur. But this judge decided, whatever, I'll give you six weeks. It would be an additional six weeks before John could see any kind of repercussion for the beating he gave his wife for Christmas. The retrial for John's charges was reset for August 16th of 2000. And Mary Jean kept an eye out this time for anything that could possibly be chalked up to more of John's antics. She was going to be there early so that what had happened before would not happen again. Before 9 a.m. the morning of August 16th, 2000, Mary Jean was seated behind the prosecution's table waiting on the trial. Judge Finn, the very man that had considered dropping these charges against John, presided. He immediately found John guilty and fined him $1,000 plus court costs and 365 days in jail that would be referred down to two years probation. Another slap on the freaking wrist. How does a man beat his ex-wife so brutally in front of his daughters? And this is what he receives as a sentence. Well, two weeks after the retrial, the final divorce decree was agreed on and signed off by both parties. Mary Jean had to pay John $75,000. He would also get visitation to the girls every Wednesday and every other weekend. He would, due to the probation that was set up before due to the beating, he also had to complete 80 hours community service and submit to drug and alcohol testing as well. So all of that pended on the divorce. So he's got, he's got to pay a thousand dollar fine. All of that has to be paid to Mary Jean. Mary Jean has to pay him $75,000. He has to complete the 80 hours of community service and pass drug tests in order to keep his visitation to his daughters. John would also have to meet with a probation officer and pay a fee of $40 each visit. So there was nothing between the divorce and between the sentencing of him violating the protection order and beating the shit of Mary Jean. Literally, John made out better. He was able to have a check for $75,000. She, eh, she, here's $1,000 for your trouble. 
Sorry about that. Won't even co cover the damn hospital bills. Irritates the crap out of me. There was things set in the divorce that protected Mary Jean to a, to a degree. John was no longer to go back to Mary Jean's residence. He had no contact with Mary Jean by telephone. The two would have to meet in a designated safe spot, which turned out to be Tom Thumb Grocery Store, in order to do an exchange of custody. Any violation would automatically land him back in jail for violation according to the sentencing from Judge Finn. I don't like this judge, by the way, but you'll be happy to know he was defeated during the race when he was back up because of his bullshit antics he pulled during John Battaglia's entire case. Just FYI. Happy news. Well, guess who found a loophole in his sentencing? That's right. John did. He found out that if he paid off his fees early, the judge would drop the community service hours. So he called up Mary Jean and said, let's go down, meet at the notary, and that's, that'll say that I paid you the $1,000 plus court costs, and you will pay me the $75,000 that was granted to me in the divorce. Everything will be done, and this can be over. And Mary Jean agreed. Thankfully, this was not another one of John's bullshit games and it literally went out the way he planned it. By Thanksgiving of the year 2000, Christy relented and decided to spend another holiday with her father after not seeing him since the incident at Christmas the year prior. After their visit, Christy decided she would come back and see her father for the Easter holiday. After this visit, John failed his very first drug test. He had marijuana found in his urine. Prosecutors filed the motions to revoke John's probation, but they never sought the hearing, which means that John violated probation, but there was never a hearing to put him in jail. Frustrating, I know. He did go to jail for, the, for peeing dirty, and he spent like six days in jail. On December 4th of the year 2000, John bonded out of that violation. For the next two and a half months, John towed the line. Never missed an appointment, never missed a payment, never failed another drug test. He was the model parolee. And as promised, Christy came for Easter. And since all of the girls were at his house the Saturday night before Easter, Christy was allowed to join her two younger sisters at Mary's for Easter dinner, where Faith and Liberty each had received Easter baskets. Christy did not. But Mary had not planned on her being there, but she didn't want Christy to feel left out, so she slipped $50 inside of a card and handed it to her. That evening, John called the only line in the house he was allowed to in Mary Jean's home, the girls, and he left a very nasty message for Mary Jean. Quote, the next time you give my daughter $50, why don't you tell her how you screwed her out of her fucking college fund, you fucking pig? How do you feel, pig? End quote. Mary Jean saved a copy of the message, like the smart woman that she was, handed it to the Highland Park Police Department, and that day, they went to a judge and obtained an arrest warrant for John Battaglia. Here's where shit gets crap. 
After a week, the warrant was still sitting on the police officer's desk. After two weeks, it's still on his desk. What are you doing? Why are y'all letting him get away like this? So, May 1st, Highland Park officers file finally for the warrant with the DA's office. John officially had a warrant out for his arrest for violating yet another term in his sentence from the beating he gave Mary Jean when violating the protection order. I mean, this at this point, we're on repeat. Seriously. I mean, oh, it irritates the shit out of me. Every time you turn around, John is violating probation, violating protection orders, and there's nothing to be done. But here we are. We have an arrest warrant, and John is finally going to be picked up. May 2nd, John woke up and went on about his business like he'd done each day before. He, he exercised, he rode his bike, he met a woman, creeped her out, you know. Then off to his job, which was new for John. And later he had planned dinner with his daughters like he'd done every other Wednesday. For him, it was just another day. Two days prior, John's probation officer warned him that his file was being sent over for probation revocation, which meant he was going to jail. Mary Jean had complained about his latest phone call, and it was obvious that she was going to stop at nothing to get him behind bars. Michelle received a dreaded phone call following the news, and it was John. He was accusing her of conspiring with Mary Jean to put him in jail. Typical NPD tendencies, everything happening that is bad is as a result of someone else being out to get them. And Michelle could, Michelle had her break. Michelle feared for Mary Jean. She prayed that she did not go through the same things that she had when she was married to John. But Michelle, she was out to stop men with law from doing what John had done. That was her goal. She was going to annihilate who he was through the legal system. And Mary, she was coming up behind him, behind Michelle, and she was fighting with the very laws Michelle was working extremely hard to be put into place. Yet, they're out to kid him, you know. Just two ex-wives sitting back, making friends, drinking bubbly, talking about how they're going to take down John, because they ain't got nothing better to do with him life. Yeah, my grammar got real bad, along with my accent. Sorry about that. So... That got him nowhere real fast. He decided he was going to call down and talk to a Highland Park detective. And this detective, he accused multiple times for becoming chummy chummy with Mary Jean, right? Well, he told her that he was in, he was under the understanding that he was going to be arrested that very night when he went to try and pick up his daughters. And the detective told him, this is not the plan. We're not going to arrest you with your daughters in sight. Well, now he has this promise of not being arrested. So John can kind of relax and figure out how, just how are we going to get back at Mary Jane? John decided to talk to a companion of his and talk her into calling Mary Jane to make sure 
everything was still scheduled for that night's custody exchange, which Mary Jean assured that was still the plan and she would be there with the girls at their designated time. John then called the girls' line and confirmed a dinner date with them. Mary Jean had come into the girls' bedroom while they were in the middle of this conversation to get her daughters some clothes picked out for them to wear when they went to go see their dad. He ended the conversation that this may be the last time he gets to see them for about a year. And this was heartbreaking to the girls. They don't, why don't I get to see my dad? While Mary Jean and Michelle had a very different John, his daughters knew him as their father and they still loved him and they trusted him because he had never, not once, showed any kind of aggression towards the girls. He hadn't so far in the least. So Faith sat down and asked her mother, why, why are we not going to be seeing dad for a whole year? And Mary Jean played it off as an over-exaggeration on John's part, which in, in the sentencing, it said that if he had violated that and he had made contact or, or was threatening to Mary Jean in any ways, he would be revoked from parole and put into jail for 365 days. So it was written there black and white. But Mary Jean, she knew John and she figured the most he's going to stay 30, maybe. Then Faith asked her mother the most crushing question she could. Why do I have the worst daddy in the world? And Mary Jean's heart broke for her daughter. You know, she wished John could be the type of father that she had hoped he was going to be. She wished she could change who Faith's father was. She wished she could make this situation incredibly better because you never want to have to explain to your children why the other parent acts the way that they do. But Faith had asked that magical question. And Mary Jean was not about to put John down to his daughters. And it broke her heart. But then Faith said something eerie. She said, no, the worst father in the world was that man who shot his wife in front of his three children. My daddy is the second worst. In hindsight, that looks so much worse, right? So we're up to the night of the murders. I'm going to dish out another warning here. This may be extremely hard for some listeners to hear. If you think that this could affect you, please skip forward for about 15 minutes, maybe 20. Um, I want to over-exaggerate that time, so you might can kind of go back a little bit at a time, but just know that as true to every other case that I've covered, I'm going to talk about details of the crime scene, and I know that could be extremely difficult for some people to hear. That is why I'm inserting another warning here. Please, please know your limits. Faith was extremely apprehensive about going to her father's, and Liberty was doing what any other six-year-old child would do when they didn't want to do something. She was hiding under her bed. Mary Jean had coaxed both girls into going and spending some time with their father that night, 
because she understood that it might be a little bit before they get to see him again. Hindsight can be the world's worst enemy in moments like this. And Mary Jean admits later that she wishes she would not have done this with her daughters. She wishes she could have had their gut feeling. But Mary Jean was doing exactly what every mother would. We don't want to badmouth the other parent, no matter what the situation is. Because up until now, John had proved to be a father to his kids. He may not be the best daddy in the world, but he was still their father. Mary Jean pulled out blue denim shorts and a pink pullover shirt for Liberty to, to wear to her father's. Got the girls dressed, and at 6 p.m., Mary Jean pulled into the parking lot of Highland Park Shopping Center, the place that had become their spot to exchange custody, and parked her car. She did not see John's truck. And there might have been a, a moment where she thought, he's not coming. And it could have... She... So there's going to be people out there that, that kind of look down at Mary Jean's decision. In that moment, you know, you have to know she was trying to do the very best she could for her kids. That's not an ideal situation to be in. Mary Jean couldn't live that life, but that does not mean that her children should not know their father. Okay. So, you know, don't throw a rock at a glass house. Just don't do it. At 6.25 that evening, John pulled into the parking lot. Both girls climbed over the front seat and gave their mother a goodbye kiss, hug, and out they went. It would be the last kiss, hug, and reassurance that Mary Jean would ever get with her daughters. John took custody of his girls, and through playful planning, it was finally coming out that Mary Jean had told her daughters about John going to jail. And about the possibility that John may not spend an entire year in jail, but they said mom said 30 days. Well, that enraged John. John didn't let that show. Instead, he said that he wanted barbecue for dinner. And if that's what they were going to have, he needed to run home and change out of his suit so that he didn't get sauce stains all over it. So back at the Adams Hat Lofts, John leads the girls to the fourth floor. He had just moved up to a new apartment from the third floor, and it was a bigger layout. And he was eagerly telling the girls about how much better this place would be in comparison to the other. And he seemed genuinely optimistic about the future with his daughters. But in reality, he had other plans. Once inside the new apartment, the girls did not disguise their feelings about the new place. It was a mess due to the move, and John had made little to no progress on the living space since he had moved. Liberty did offer a bit of relief for her, or a bit of belief in her father, knowing that he could make it as nice as he described with the bunk beds for the girls and a corner to call their own. Now, these are open lofts, so... Kitchen, living room, bedrooms, there's nothing dividing you there. It's all open. The bathroom is the only place you have a little bit of 
um, privacy. So this entire space is filled with John's crap. Some of the girls crap that he had accrued over the time being separated from Mary Jean. And it was just a mess. You've all been there. We've all had that move and you know what it's going to look like. But the girls were promised this, you know, new thing. John changed and he decided after changing and before they could leave, they were going to call Mary Jean and see exactly what her inner intentions were with John and this whole going to jail business. The ruse to get around the fact that he was not allowed to contact his ex-wife was that the girls were not prohibited from calling their mother while at John's. He talked Faith into doing it even though... She didn't want to. This was not something she was comfortable with. Thankfully, there was no answer, so Faith left a message for her mother to call them back as soon as she could. So idea number one failed. So now it's time to see how much more the girls knew of their mother's plan. And both girls cried. They're not wanting to talk about the elephant in the room. Why are you putting me in this situation? You make your... You know, they have to feel like they're being torn between both parents. And no child wants to have to pick one of the other. You know, that's just not how children are wired. <laughs> they're just not. John conned his oldest daughter into figuring out what her mother was up to. And when she called them back, even though Faith didn't want to, she was being drugged into the middle of it. So John came up with another idea. He called his ex-mother-in-law and told her he needed to talk to Mary Jean. But as he was not supposed to be contacting her, he asked if she would call her daughter and relay the message back to him. You know, give me a call back. Well, Doris was reluctant, but she gave in and agreed she would call Mary Jean and have her call John back as soon as possible. Well, Mary Jean had these hours between custody exchanges on Wednesdays, and she decided she was going to go to a friend's home and they were going to work on something. And this was a friendship that had grown from a relationship that started when both of these women's eldest daughters started kindergarten and they were in the same class. It had only strengthened over time, and this friend was very aware of what Mary Jean was going through. So her mother calls her on her cell phone. And at that time, you know, we keep calls short. We got weekend nights and minutes, you know, that kind of thing going on. So tell me what you got to say and let's get off the phone. Well, mother says, you know, you need to call John. I just received this super strange phone call and, you know, just maybe want to check on things. Mary Jane wasn't stupid. She could see right through John and she knew he was putting the girls up to something. But she secretly hoped that maybe they had worn their father down and they were coming home early. So she went inside of her friend's home and that's where she called John back to see what he needed. John answered the phone and when he realized it was Mary Jean, without any words, he handed the phone to Faith. And she could hear John in the background screaming at her saying, ask her, ask her. And so Faith gave in and she said, mommy, why do you want daddy to have to go to jail? Mary Jean should have known this was a trap. 
But as a mother and your, your girls are calling and they need you to call them back, you, you, you know, you do it because you need to make sure it's nothing more, right? Mary Jean tried to plead with John over the phone to not do this in front of their daughters until she heard her daughter's fear-filled voice produce the next words that would forever be a part of Mary Jean's consciousness. No, Daddy, don't. Oh, please, no. Daddy, don't do it. No, no, no. Suddenly, Mary Jean heard the pop of a gun. She screamed for her daughters to run. Liberty took off. Away from Faith, who had already been taken down by a bullet, and more were following. She willed her mind to see the girls running from John and getting to the door in hopes to escape him in this attack. But John was too quick and he had already shot one daughter and the other one would be stopped feet from the front door. Her pink pullover shirt was riddled with bullet wounds, just like her older sister. John's voice came back on the line and told Mary Jean, Merry fucking Christmas, Mary Jean, and hung up. Mary Jean's best friend was at her side the moment that Mary Jean began screaming for her daughters to run. And once the call ended, she pleaded to her friend to call 911. Because the only thing Mary Jean wanted to do as a mother and with the motherly instincts is to go and be with her children and, and protect them. Mary Jean hopped on the phone before deciding to depart and told the dispatcher that he had killed the children. And in an almost shocking tone, the dispatcher didn't believe what they were hearing. Because surely there was no father out there that would do what Mary Jean is saying he just did. Mary Jean said they needed to dispatch as many as they could to 2700 Canton, apartment 317. Then Mary Jean corrected herself and said apartment 418. Her babies were lying there dying in the apartment of 418. Deep alum, Adam's hat lofts, a dark scar on the culture was already underway. The dispatcher decided she needed to get off the phone and get in contact with Dallas because Dallas was the one in jurisdiction since it was a deep alum address not Highland Park. And Mary Jean informed him that when we get off the phone, I'm going down there and I'm going to need everyone you can to send there and help me save my girls. Mary Jean left her friend's home. Faith was a mere feet, maybe a foot, maybe two at most, when her father shot her the first time. Her body spun with the momentum of the bullet and she turned her back to her father in which the second shot ripped into her torso, immediately paralyzing her. The first one had ripped through her shoulder. Four more shots would be laid into Faith before he turned the gun on Liberty, who was running just like her mother had told her to. But John was bigger and John was faster. 
The first shot he fired at Liberty grazed her head, leaving a gash. Liberty screamed and cried, and she held the wound, but her little legs still carried her to the front door. It was the only exit. She, too, was hit in the abdomen, and it instantly paralyzed her as well. And she received four to five more shots before John wished Mary Jean a Merry Christmas. Once he ended the phone call, he switched weapons and used a Glock to shoot both girls in the back of their heads execution style. John had taken from his wife the only thing he could, their daughters. The dispatcher failed to put the fear that Mary Jean oozed during her phone call just moments before into the phone call to dispatch officers to the scene. They used the term domestic dispute when they relayed the message to the officers. And had they mentioned of what Mary Jean had said and in the manner that she had said it in, maybe Mary Jean would not have turned on to Canton and seen the streets clear. No police, no sirens, no flashing lights. How could she have beat them all to a call where two children may be dead inside the building? How? It was said that John probably discharged a firearm through the dispatch and the officers discussing the, the call. Even with the file as thick as the one that Highland Park had on J John David Battalion Jr., they still believed that he would not have hurt those girls. The seriousness of the dispatchers influenced the police and their urgency. An even further assault to the severity of this situation is the dispatcher forgot that Mary Jean gave them the exact address and apartment number. But when police asked dispatch what the address was, they simply said they were not given that information. The panic in Mary Jean was chalked up to the fact that she was the mother. Yes, she was. And she knew John, and even though no one wanted to believe it, he was very capable of doing what had just happened. Meanwhile, John has very little to no blood on him after killing his his daughters. He goes into his bathroom. He rummages through the medicine cabinet, decided on a pill bottle for tranquilizers, dumps a handful in his hand, puts them in his mouth, a couple gulps of water from the sink, and down they go. He was now actively trying to erase what had just happened in his home. John left the apartment and his daughter's bodies behind as he took off into the night on a binge like no other. From the handful of tranquilizers that he had taken to everything else, all of it came back to being Mary Jean's fault. His lawyer informed him that jail time was a very strong possibility in getting out of it like the million times he had done before was probably not going to cut it. Mary Jean was being blamed for his finger pulling the trigger. Just blocks away, John walked into a bar that he frequented and ordered a gin and tonic. He gulped it down. He ordered a second. 
on top of the belly full of tranquilizers he had, this was not a good idea. But he needed to head out into the night because he needed to get his affairs in order. Back at the loft, Mary Jean was just arriving and she was on the phone with 911 again, this time to find out why no one was here yet. She pulled up to the front entrance of the building and she got out of her car, went and pulled on the door and found that she had to have a key or be buzzed into the building. So she was not getting in. She sank back down into her car after a failed attempt to get the attention of another police cruiser in the area that was driving in the opposite direction. The detective that soothed John with the notion that he would not be arrested was going to get on the line and she was going to talk to Mary Jean. Hope was small when the officer traveling in the wrong direction turned around and headed to the loft. He pulled in behind Mary Jean and she hopped out of her car to tell him what was going on. As he was getting to the entrance of the building, a resident was there to let him in and he would be the first person on scene. No one was going to get sleep that night. John was in his office preparing documents for Christy and his money to go to her. This was the college fund he blamed Mary Jean for taking away. He called Christy and left a message to tell her what he was doing. She was going to get a check in the mail along with some paperwork to obtain the rest of his finances. This was for her. He was setting her up. Mary Jean watched as officers disappeared into the building that her ex-husband now resided in. Her cell phone rang and it was the detective from Highland Park that had handled their case for some time and even telling John that he was not going to be arrested that night. The same detective. Mary Jean filled her in on what she had already told dispatchers and what she knew from the phone call. Detective Justice was shocked that Mary Jean thought the girls had been murdered. Surely John wasn't capable of doing what Mary Jean is telling her. At this point, Mary Jean's friend found a babysitter for her kids, and she's on her way. Mary Jean was going to need somebody there to catch her when she fell. The officers went into the building and had been in the building some time when the ambulance pulls up. Mary Jean is convinced that her daughters are dead, but, you know, she's holding on to that sliver of hope that maybe they're not. The officer that went into the building first walks out of the building. Mary Jean can read his face, and Detective Justice heard Mary Jean crumble. There was nothing that she could do to help. Mary Jean's friend agreed to go into the building with the officer. Somebody needed to identify the girls, and Mary Jean said she couldn't see him like that. Detective Justice asked Mary Jean, do you want me to come down there? And Mary Jean pleaded, please come because this can't be happening. She was going to need support once the identity of her girls was confirmed. And since there was a, you know, a, a relationship built there, it didn't hurt to have her. Officer Murray was the first one in the building and 
he's now on the phone. He has two dead little girls and he needs Dallas County medical examiners to be on scene. It's 8.32 p.m. The homicide scene had been secured. Now they were going to secure Unit 316, which was likely that John still had keys to. It was highly unlikely he was still on scene, but you gotta you gotta go through all the steps, so you have to check. Someone was being sent over to Doris, Mary Jean's mother's house, in fear that John may be headed there next to kill her. But there was also this possibility that John was on his way to Louisiana to his eldest daughter, Christy. Mary Jean is grabbing at straws at people who need to be protected from her ex-husband because he has done the unthinkable and there's no telling what he's going to do next. Mary Jean picks up the phone. She calls Michelle. Christy answers the phone. Mary Jean asks to speak to her mother and they waited for Christy to hang up her end of the line. And once they were sure she was no longer on the phone, Mary Jean told Michelle that John had just murdered the girls. And Michelle said, you know, that's not funny. And Mary Jean said, I'm not joking. And Michelle fell apart for Mary Jean. She fell apart for those little girls. She fell apart for her daughter's sisters. She fell apart for the absolute tragedy that this is. There's no joking here. Now it's time to make sure Christy is safe. So Michelle tells her she needs to go. She gets off the phone with Mary Jean and immediately she starts making phone calls in order to protect herself and her children because they don't know where John is at this moment. Michelle noticed after making some calls to her sisters to get them there to help protect her and her daughter that she had three missed phone calls from John, each with a message. And now Michelle was eager more than ever to hear what they had to say. The message was to Christy from John telling her there's a check in the mail with some paperwork. This would leave you my money. It's yours. It's yours for college. And this left with Michelle the notion that John may be committing suicide. So now we have that probability. We have this shitstorm going on where nobody took it seriously back happening in Deep Ellum. Nobody knows where John is. Michelle doesn't know how to protect her daughter from something like this. Everything is up in the air because nobody knows where John David Battaglia is at this moment. So the next place that the police storm is John's private accounting firm, which was no longer located above his ex-mother-in-law's antique shop like it had been prior to the divorce. And then they stormed the building that John's new job was located in because he was not only running his own private firm, but he was working for a corporation as well. Wherever John could be, the police were on their way to see if he was hiding out. It seemed like for every step they took, they were always one step behind John. But eventually, they were going to catch up. Every officer who was on scene and those who had heard over the radio when coming on to shift had their eyes peeled looking for this piece of shit.
A friend of John's was the place that he would end up running to. And now that all of his affairs were in order, he needed some real drugs. He was always partial to cocaine and hoped that when he got there, she would have some. But she wasn't home. So John enters the home anywhere, anyways, makes himself comfortable, goes to the bathroom, passes out. At 10 p.m., his friend crosses the threshold of her apartment with her date. They find John passed out in the bathroom. And, you know, things aren't looking good for the date. Now this female friend is concerned about John and what's going on. And John's now saying, you know, I took a lot of downers. Now I need me a pick-me-up. You got, you know, you got some Coke? Well, she didn't have Coke. She had something even better. And John had dabbled in this once or twice before. He knew enough to know that injection wasn't for him because he didn't like to do that. He knew that snorting didn't bring on the effects fast enough. So what was left? Smoking. John watched as the methamphetamines melted and smoked into the glass pipe before he inhaled deeply. With the new pick-me-up, John was up, raring to go. He wanted to go and get a new tattoo. And if she went with him, he would pay for hers as well. Well, what person who likes to have bodywork done is going to deny someone else paying for you a tattoo? Nobody. So off they went into the night down in Deep Ellum. What he really wanted to do was memorialize his daughters. As John is rearing to go and willing to put anything in his body to numb reality, the two head off into the night fueled Deep Ellum District. John was within miles of his loft where police were and their eyes were scanning every face to walk past thinking maybe John would be one of those stupid idiots who come back to the crime scene to see the outcome. You know, the latest lesson to teach his ex-wife, but he never showed. John and his friend strolled into Elm Street Tattoo. Well, after 11 o'clock, he wanted two roses for his daughter, something to remember them by. His friend was thinking nothing more than this is a father wanting his daughters to be with him at all times because he has this custody thing going on. It's not a big deal, right? A lot of people get tattoos to represent their children. So there's nothing, there's no bells going off right now. Except for the fact that John is incredibly high. Because prior to walking into the tattoo shop, they went into a little cafe, bought an eight ball of Coke, and now he's on tranquilizers, meth, and Coke. Yeah, he's looking great. Oh, not to include that he's been drinking. John chooses a yellow and a red rose, and they are bound together by black barbed wire. John had the tattoo artist wrap them seemingly around the lion head that had already been on his shoulder, signifying his zodiac sign. Now, Mary Faith and Liberty would forever be with him. At 2130, though... The two who those roses stood for were finally pronounced dead at the scene. This wasn't a nightmare. This was Mary Jean's new life, and fear bound her and would stay by her side until John David Battaglia Jr. was arrested. 
Around midnight into the early morning hours of May 3rd, a 13-year veteran dressed plain clothed detective was having another look around on Elm Street when he spotted sitting in the parking lot of Cafe Brazil, John's black pickup truck. This is blocks, and I mean blocks away from the crime scene. How had they overlooked this this bad? At 2 a.m., all units that had been lying in wait saw the dark figure that they had, that they were all itching to get their hands on. Weapons were drawn when the lights of the pickup lit up with the press of a button. John Battaglia, you're under arrest. John opened his door and acted like he hadn't heard the men who have guns pointing at him. And I say men, that mean men. There are multiple officers on scene taking John into custody. Because you have to take into account the gruesome crime scene they discovered in his apartment. 15 firearms, including the firearms he used to kill his children, were still in the home. That does not mean that that's all that he owned. So they were treating him like the utmost wanted criminal, right? Very dangerous. Didn't know what was going on. So John's inside the truck reaching and like the top half of his body is in the cab of the pickup and all those with guns, they're just in their head. They're thinking this dude's going to try and do suicide by cop, right? Well, John didn't. Instead, he came out swinging. John thought he was going to whip all their asses. And with the amount of drugs that were coursing through his blood, very, very likely he had convinced himself he was capable of doing this. But he came out on the underside because every cop, uniformed or plain clothed, wanted a piece of him. And when you look at this man's mugshot, that's exactly what they got before they cuffed him. Those drugs probably limited the amount of actual pain John felt during the beating. Um, but rest assured, when they wore off, he's going to feel it. And he's also going to understand the very seriousness of the situation he had put himself into. Into the late night with red and blue lights in the sky, John's friend emerges from the tattoo parlor to find John in handcuffs and in the back of a cruiser, yawning like a man who just needed to go home and go to bed. She was appalled when she was informed that the reason John was in handcuffs is because he murdered his daughters. She had no idea how he had spent his night before showing up at her apartment. John played the entire rest as though he'd post his typical bell and walk out into the world. This time, he had taken it too far, and there was no coming back from this. Not even his father could get him out of this, if his father had been in his life. Mary Jean had gone to a motel because they were not sure where John was and with him out on the run like that, it was very dangerous for Mary Jean to go back to her home. So she lay in the motel bedroom, not sleeping, when Detective Justice knocks on her door around 2 a.m. and she notifies Mary Jean they have John in custody and Mary Jean collapsed. It had to come to this before the police took John serious. 
Days later, it was decided that Mary Faith and Liberty would be buried together in their own casket, and then the casket would rest with their grandfather. Jean's grave was dug up, and he was removed so they could dig the hole deeper to accommodate two caskets being stacked. Mary Jean had lost her reason for living, but she was still their mother, and she was still to protect them, and no one could protect those girls any better than the man that had treated his women like princesses. John could no longer hurt them. September 1st of 2001, Governor Rick Perry signed into law Texas Senate Bill 140. It says, quote, It is not in the best interest of a child for a parent to have unsupervised visitation with the child when credible evidence is presented of a history or pattern of past or present child neglect or physical or sexual abuse by that parent directed against the other parent, a spouse, or a child. John Battaglia broke the mold, finally. Lawmakers were taking domestic assault seriously enough to make laws to protect the victims instead of the abuser. Two weeks following the murder of Mary Faith and Liberty, John Battaglia was shuffled into a courtroom where a judge read out his indictment charges, two counts of capital murder. The state of Texas would either seek life in prison without the possibility of parole or the death penalty in the case against Battaglia. John just stared blankly ahead as the possible punishment for the charges were read aloud. His lawyer had to confirm for him that he understood the severity of what he was up against. John Sr. decided to work with John's defense. His son was guilty, he was sure. But if he was involved, maybe the death penalty could be taken off of the table. He did not realize all that his son had done in his life was to pad the state's case so well in violation after violation of protective orders from both ex-wives. The state didn't want a plea deal. They wanted John's life. Your daddy is going to pay was Mary Jean's promise and it was well on its way to coming true. On April 22, 2002, John David Battaglia Jr. stood trial for the murders of his daughters. He would have to see Mary Jean as she was a key witness for the state. She had to relive the moment to make John pay for what he had done, and all he could do is mouth, 
I'm sorry to his ex-wife even though she would never cast her eyes on him during her time on the stand. The trial lasted four days, but it took the jury only 19 minutes to convict John of two counts of capital murder. The same jury would decide in six and a half hours on April 30th, 2002, to sentence him to death. The state feared John had found a loophole when he received his first day of execution. He needed to be looked at on a psychological level as his defense was arguing that he was not mentally capable of being put to death. He would receive a second stay under the same guidelines, and we cringed and hoped that the law wasn't going to let him off one last time. February 1st, 2018, John David Battaglia Jr. was shoveled into the death chamber. He saw the faces of many, but the only one that was familiar was that of Mary Jean. His last words were, Well, hi, Mary Jean. I'll see you later. Bye. Go ahead, please. Michelle has continued to be a front-line fighter for victims like she once was. She continues to fight against the laws that allow abusers to run free while their victims are terrorized by the revolving door of a police precinct. Mary Jean's life has become private, and with all that she's been through, it's more than well-deserved. I want to thank you all for joining me tonight as we close out the beast that is this case. I still hope you all can contribute to your local shelter, and if not, that's okay too. Offer your shoulder, your embrace, your ear to anyone who needs it. Life shouldn't have moments like this when the law protects men like John Battaglia and lets the lives of innocent children be the price to pay for it. If you or someone you know is suffering from domestic abuse, please call 1-800-799-7233. That's 1-800-799-SAFE. Next week, we are going to have a little break so that I can celebrate my birthday with my family without sifting through ugly court documents and terrible crime scene details. Just know I love you all big and will miss you dearly. And as always, I leave you with one last line. Life is not about how you survive the storm. It's about how you dance in the rain. Much love, the true crime librarian.